There's a theme that we find here in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53 that we expect. We expect the story of one who sacrificed his life for another. It's a story that's not an uncommon theme. You will hear of heroes in warfare that sacrifice their lives in order that others might live. We hear of people who are willing to give up everything for others. Sometimes it's in serious situations. Sometimes it's in drama. It's a common theme in drama. And I was thinking about one of those scenes this week and remembered this little interaction. Jim, out of danger. Yes. Don't breathe, Pepper. Just watch it go. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. What do you feel? I was sitting up here watching the expressions. We know it's a blooming movie. But there was a heaviness, wasn't there? A sense of loss. Friendship ending. Life ending. And what you don't see in that scene, now again, it's science fiction and we have the search for Spock and, you know, the bizarre way in which McCoy has his memories and all that kind of stuff, or the new one where it's the blood of Connor. But we understand that in almost every one of those kinds of situations, celebration and rejoicing is not connected with it. Now, it's true there are times that it's logical that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one. And that's very much the theme of Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. That the many, we, 
outweighed the life of the one, he. But what is so amazing about Isaiah 52 and 53 is that it doesn't leave us in this emotion. In fact, it's just the opposite. Where Isaiah wants us to be is not in grief, but in celebration, in rejoicing. Because we understand that in that drama with a friend dying, that there is a sadness, but we understand that what Isaiah is talking about is infinitely more. It's not a friend dying. It's God in Christ who dies. But the story does not end on a cross. The victory follows. And Isaiah wants to make sure that we definitely understand that. And so in a way, Isaiah is written like this week progresses. It begins with the victory and the celebration. It begins all two weeks ago when we were in Lancaster with the grandkids. I heard, Hosanna, Hosanna, ho, ho, Hosanna, Hosanna, as Audrey was singing it and you know, when she'd start getting, falling asleep and we didn't want her to start falling asleep, I'd just start singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, ho, ho, Hosanna. You see, the story of Palm Sunday begins with a celebration. Here's our king. And in the middle, there's suffering. He dies. But on Easter, we celebrate again. And that's exactly how Isaiah writes this. Now, I don't think in its writing it's prophetic. I think in its writing he's just sort of making sure we don't get caught in just the grief. But we understand it's all about celebration. Some of you will remember ABC's Wide World of Sports. And when they would begin, there was the guy coming down the, the lift and one guy was doing something and it says, it's all about the joy of victory. Remember the next phrase? And the agony of defeat. Isaiah says, it's all about the joy of victory through the agony of defeat. And that's the theme. And so as we begin to look at Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, we come to understand this, that through his death, through the agony of defeat, through the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
through all of the suffering of the cross, the servant and his people don't feel like we did watching that little movie clip. Rather, we revel in our victory. Usually the sacrifice of a life brings mourning. But here the sacrifice of a life brings reveling victory. Now we've been working our way through the the songs of Isaiah and the songs that deal with the Messiah, the servant. And we looked at some, the, the chapter 42 and the song, the psalm that's found there. And we looked at chapter 49 and we looked at chapter 50. But now we come to the last of the songs. I could spend a month, I won't, and we won't take a long time this morning. But this is one of the most incredibly written passages in all of Scripture. The precision that Isaiah uses as he goes through and the exact wording and the way he repeats words. There's 118 words in this one song. And well over half of them are repeated. He wants us to understand the theme. He he wants us to understand that this one is coming for a purpose and a reason. He wants us to understand the theology, and there's theology all through these verses. Theology that deals with the substitutionary atonement of Christ, that Jesus brought about our freedom through his death. There are images, the image of the, all we like sheep have gone astray. One of the earliest Bible verses we tend to learn if you memorize verses. That image is found in here. The, the image of one being pierced and the image of one being crushed and, and the, 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 the thought, the picture that it's meant to bring. We're going to see in a few moments a, a word play that that Isaiah does in this passage, where when you begin in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 3 through verse 8 of Isaiah chapter 53, there is this back and forth between we and he. We and he. We and he. Isaiah builds what's called chiastic structure where he repeats an idea. He begins with an idea and he ends in an idea. But right in the middle is the real focus. And here's what the focus is. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. And the iniquity of us all was laid on him. But as you work your way through this passage, Isaiah wants us to remember it's a victory passage. I read the end of the book. 
he wins. I know what happens next Sunday. He wins. I know what happens to evil in darkness. He wins and conquers them. Through his death, the servant and his people revel in victory. You see, as the liberator of God's people, victory is enjoyed by this servant. It's not what we expect. We will see in a while he dies, but how can he die and also enjoy the victory? How can he suffer and also be, be you know, how can he be defeated and still be the one that wins? How can this all take place? And what Isaiah does is over and over again, he reminds us of this victory. He reminds us that death is not the end, that that the defeat is not the end, that there's more coming, that there's more coming. When you read Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, the, the passages that, that, that Dave read this morning and a little bit more before it, particularly in Isaiah chapter 52 and beginning in verse 15, this one who is disfigured beyond what you would even recognize as a human, this one who suffers. It goes on in Isaiah chapter 52 verse 15 and says, so he sprinkled many nations and kings will shut their mouths in awe and wonder and amazement. goes on to say, for what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. See, this is an amazing event, Isaiah is saying. And ultimately, that victory is found as you come to the end, as Isaiah summarizes Isaiah 52 and 53, and There, as you begin in verse 10, it says, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And and through the Lord, I'm sorry, and though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands, though he will be buried, though he will die. There's still victory. And then the ultimate victory. For it says, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of his life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and will bear their iniquities. And now notice the next phrase. Verse 12. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong. Now, that's the NIV's translation of it. And it's a pretty good translation. But in the original Hebrew, there is a way in which the grammar is constructed. That is actually stronger than what the English comes across. It's not the idea that this will be given among him. Probably the better way to translate that passage is this way. Therefore, this is God speaking. I will give 
him the many, not from the many, but I will give him the many. The many are his. What are the many? All from the many nations, the people that he has come to redeem, the people he has come to set free, the people he has come to make righteous. God says, I will give him the many. He will be victorious. And not only that, so victorious, not that he will receive from the spoils of the mighty, but rather he will receive the very mighty as his spoils. What's God saying? In the end, he wins. You are the many that are celebrated because of the life and the death of this one. And he gives us to the son. It's his inheritance and his reward. And all the spoils that the mighty think they might have, guess who they belong to? This one who seemed to be defeated. It speaks of the kingdom. It speaks of the ultimate celebration of God's people when all that is God's and God's reign will be evident to everyone and the kings will shut their mouths and they will see what they did not understand and they will hear what they had never heard before. That this one that seems so weak, this one that seems so defeated, he's the ultimate victor. He wins. And we enjoy it with him forever. If I'm part of his people. But there's one other phrase that Isaiah uses to talk about this one and his victory. And it's a phrase that's used throughout the passage. Throughout Isaiah. And a number of different occasions. And it's one we've read before but we really hadn't stopped about. Notice Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I've never been a bodybuilder. Surprise, surprise. But you ever watched a bodybuilder? What do they love to show off? To show off their arms, their muscles. What does it represent? It represents their strength. It represents their power. It represents the sense of, of masculinity and strength. Isaiah says. This servant, he's the arm of the Lord. He's God's power. He's God's strength. Do you want to see God's ability to deliver and free his people? Geopolitically, it was a guy by the name of Cyrus who brought them out of Babylon and put them back in their land. But the one who will do it spiritually, the one who will be the arm, the one that will grab his people and nothing can take them out of his hands and return them to the land and bring them about not in just a physical land, but a spiritual 
spiritual redemption. Isaiah says it's this one. Look to this servant to be the arm, the deliverer of God. Now, what do we expect? We expect what the first century people expected, that one would come in with a sword and he'd come in with strength and he'd destroy the Romans and he'd set up his kingdom and, and you know, the Romans would be put down and Israel would be brought up. And I think there is a way in which that happens in the kingdom ahead of us. But before that happens, God says, I have to deliver my people spiritually. And this is the one who will do it. But what I find so interesting is how Isaiah talks about this one. When Jesus returns, everyone will believe the message. There will be no one that doubts. For they will see Christ in all of his glory. They will see Christ in all of his power, in all of his holiness. And Philippians says that when they see him, that every knee will bow. And every tongue confess. Because it will be clear. But in Isaiah, when he's talking about this servant... He says in Isaiah chapter 53, who believes our message? Who believes that this could be true? That this one, this servant could could be the very power of God to deliver his people spiritually. How could it be? And why is this so confusing? And the answer is found in the center section of the book of Isaiah. Of, of, Psalm 50, of Isaiah 52 and 53. And it's this. That the servant's victory is accomplished. Through his fatal suffering. You don't usually think about strength when somebody dies. You don't usually think about victory when somebody dies. But that's exactly what Isaiah says. Again, I'm sorry you're flipping back and forth in Isaiah 52 and 53, but in order to get the understanding, we need to do that. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 12, it says, Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will will divide the spoils with the strong. And then he goes on to say, here's why there's victory. Here's why he's the arm of the Lord. Here's why that can be accomplished. And it begins with the little word, because. And it's because the victory comes because he does four things. It says, because he poured out his life unto death. Because he was numbered with the transgressors. Because he bore the sins of the many. And because he made intercession for the transgressor. How does the victory come about? How does the victory take place? 
How do we know that in the end we win? It's because of those four things that Isaiah has just laid out for us. And he said, these are the four things. These are the things that that savior, that that servant, that one who is the arm of the Lord, the arm of the Lord is seen in his suffering and his death for you and for me. That's the power of God. You see, the victory comes and he is victorious because of his willingness to suffer death. And you can read through the passages. We don't have time this morning, but you can read through Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4 and verse 8 and verse 9, where it speaks about him being pierced. It's, and that idea of pierced is stabbed to death. And crushed, meaning ultimately just destroyed. When it says that his grave, normally you die before you go to the grave was meant to be with the criminal. But Isaiah says, but somehow he gets buried with a rich person. But ultimately it comes down to that phrase at the end of Isaiah 53 when it says, because he poured out his life unto death. It is the idea that not that he died, but that he willingly gave up his life. He willingly died for you and for me. No one made him do it. No one forced him to do it. He voluntarily said, I will die for the many. I will give my life. You see, one of the problems with the sacrificial system, and one of the things that Isaiah is showing us in, in the use of that idea that he did it unto himself, he was willing to give up his life, is that no sacrifice in the Old Testament willingly went to the altar. No lamb ever said, oh, okay, I'll go. No bull ever said, oh, okay, I'll go. No dove ever said, oh, okay, I'll go. They had no will. They were animals. But the problem was, when it came to our sin, it was always willful. That the word transgression used there, when he died for our transgression, is the idea of thumbing my nose at God. I willfully disobey. And eventually there had to be a sacrifice that reflected that willfulness. Just as there is willfulness in sin, there needed to be willfulness in the sacrifice. Isaiah said there was a sacrifice given for us where one willfully gave up his life for you and for me. Willfully understood what it meant to be separated from the Father. So that you and I would never have to know spiritual death. One who willingly died on the altar in a shape of a cross. 
so that you and I would never have to pay that sacrifice. Isaiah declares the willingness of the sacrifice that made it possible for him to pay for the willfulness of our sin. He was the ultimate sacrifice. But that sense of willing to do it for us is found in that second phrase. He is victorious because of his willingness to identify with the outcast. He was willing to identify with us who are bent and messed up. He was willing to identify with us in the infirmities of our sins. Not that he ever sinned. He never did. But he became human like you and I and was willing to walk among us. And be identified with us. Isaiah says it a number of different places. When he says of this one. That he grew up us before, I'm sorry, he grew up before him, that is God, like a tender shoot. And like the root out of a dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us, nothing of his appearance, that we should become amazed at him. It goes on to say that he was willing, that he took upon himself our infirmities. He identified with us. He became like us in his humanity. And why did he do that? So that he could die for us. See, the other problem with the Old Testament sacrificial system, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. It could become a symbol of what eventually would take place. It could become a focus of faith where I could believe that God one day would bring about that forgiveness, but it could never take away sin. It took one to become like us in every way, but without sin. In order that he might become sin for us. And that our sins could be forgiven in his death. And his sacrifice. You see victory comes because he was willing to identify with us. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. But the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In order that we might understand what God is all about. Do you know what he's all about? God and the second person of the Godhead was willing to die. To pay the penalty, the fine that was due him. But he became like us in order to pay it. That's not what was expected. But also he's victorious for this third reason. Because he bore the corruption of others. Jesus was perfect in every way. There was no corruption in him. He took upon himself our corruption. 
our sinfulness. I don't recommend the movie because of its R rating, but there's a movie entitled The Green Mile. And if you've ever watched it, the idea is that this particular prisoner who's innocent of the crime is able to, to draw away the sickness in somebody else and take it into his own body. Scripture says that's exactly, in a sense, what Jesus did for us. He drew our corruption placed it upon himself. It says there in Isaiah chapter 53, for he bore the sin of the many. And this is where that wonderful word play comes in. Notice beginning there, actually it begins in, in, in verse 1 of Isaiah 53, but I'm going to pick it up in verse 4, where it says, surely he took our infirmities and he carried our sorrows and we considered him stricken. We considered him smitten and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That wordplay goes back and forth. In fact, it's emphasized in the Hebrew. There are languages like Hebrew, like Greek, where the verb contains the person being spoken of, whether it's first person, second person, third person. So you don't need the pronoun like we do in English. In order to, to know who we're talking about, we will say he or she or I or you. But in Hebrew and Greek, you don't need the pronoun. But sometimes you throw the pronoun in to focus our attention. It would be something like this. He, that one right there, he did this. For you, those out there, us, we. He had no sin. He had no infirmity. He had no transgression. He did it for us. And as a result, Isaiah says, this is what he became. He says in verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And the Lord would make of his life a guilt offering. It was the offering that made things right between man and man between person and person, and between God and man. When a perfect lamb was slain in order to demonstrate the forgiveness of sins. Who's our guilt offering? It's Jesus. You see, every sin requires a sacrifice. And the only question is this, are you going to pay it or are you going to let the servant pay it? If you're going to pay it, it'll take eternity. If you let him pay it, it's done. C.S. Lewis was involved in a discussion among a whole bunch of religious leaders and he came and he said to them this, do you know the difference between Christianity and all of these other religions? 
You can spell every other religion with these two letters. D-O. Do. Because in every other religion, you always have to do and do and do and do and do and do and do. And it's never enough. He said, you spell Christianity with four letters. D-O-N-E. Done. It's translated, it is finished. In the Aramaic, it was to telestai. Once for all. Now the choice is, do you want to try to satisfy God? Or you're willing to accept that he already did and accept his sacrifice. And then finally, he was victorious because as a result of that guilt offering, intercession there has the idea of making connection. He connects us back with God. The New Testament says it this way. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the one and only exclusive way in which my sins, my transgressions, my infirmities, my spiritual disease is dealt with. I either try to pay it on my own and, the, and the, it will never get paid or I accept the payment that's already been made for me and accept that he paid my cost. <coughs> but there's one other message that I just want to touch on real quick here in Isaiah, in Isaiah 52 and 53, and it's this, that God does things in ways we could never understand. Isaiah writes, who believes this? Who could believe that God would do it this way? And Isaiah wants us to understand that wherever we are, whatever we are struggling with, whatever the situation, trust God. He can do it in ways you can never imagine and bring about deliverance and bring about restitution and bring about redemption in ways that you could never possibly ever comprehend and plan on your own. Joshua, go march around the city seven times. Watch this. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, go jump in the fire and watch this. Daniel, go ahead and pray. Watch what I'm going to do. Mary and Martha, the sickness isn't under death. Watch what I'm going to do. Peter, John, Andrew, James. I may die on a cross, but I'm coming back. (coughs) See, God is the way. I mean, Jesus is the way to God, but also we need to understand. Isaiah says you can trust God no matter what the circumstances. Because what the servant taught us is this. If you trust God... He will bring about what he promises in a way you can never even comprehend. 
So trust him. Trust him for your salvation. He paid the cost. Trust him that he knows what he's doing. Even if it means death on a cross. Because in the end, we will celebrate the victory. Father, thank you for the example that Isaiah places before us. For the truth that he gives us. Father, may we be those that live out this reality in our lives. And Father, we will do it for your honor and for your glory. We put forth the two invitations that are found here. One, if there's someone who's never accepted the sacrifice your son made for them, we ask that you would lead them to do that this morning and then they would come and talk to somebody about how they might do that. For those of us who live in the reality of that sacrifice, those of us who are in Christ, help us to realize that in all times we can trust you for you have ways of doing things that are beyond even our imagination. Lord, we ask that we may learn to trust you for your honor and for your glory and for your kingdom. Amen.